session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Kalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Not taking any calls today because I'll be starting with the book and then I have a guest on the show. But you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, my guest today who will be joining me for the second segment throughout the rest of the show is my brother Parham Holakwi. We will be talking about uh, the mindset or the psychology of economists, the good and the bad of it, and sharing some thoughts and exploring some ideas related to that. So looking forward to that discussion with him. But since I did not have a show Monday night because of President's Day here in the United States, I'll be doing the book review today. And I'll also announce the book for this week, which is Missing Each Other by Edward Brodkin and Ashley Palothra. Missing Each Other, How to Cultivate Meaningful Connections. So I look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on Monday's show next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is The Power of Regret by Daniel H. Pink. The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And uh, when I just saw the title of this book, as I often say, I do judge books by their covers and their titles, um, and also the author in this case, uh, I was very intrigued because I think regret, like a lot of negative emotions, and I'll touch on that, are looked at uh, in the wrong way. We see them as because it feels bad, we should avoid it, and avoiding it is good at all costs, and people live their lives in that way or with that philosophy or mindset and I think it harms us and this book points to the power of regret and how we actually can harness it for our own benefit which can seem strange if I tell you for example the power of sadness and how it can let you live a good life or the power of anger we usually think that doesn't make sense if I say the power of happiness you might think that makes sense and that's something we should cultivate but here we can see that the negative feelings also have value as well so um, when we look at uh, the power of regret or what that means, regret is an emotion we feel when we look back on an action or something that's happened that we don't feel good about. And importantly, there's a difference between something bad happening and us feeling like we had some element of control or our action or inaction led to that, which is important. So we can feel disappointment if something doesn't go the way we want, but we feel regret if we feel that we in some way could have done something differently or could have done something about it. And he starts off the book talking about this motto of no regrets. Uh, and he shares several different people who have that tattoo, different people around the world who felt the urge to get that tattoo. And he also shares uh, the story of the song by um, Edith Piaf, who you actually probably have heard the song. I didn't realize she was singing this, but um, she's saying, uh, I have no regrets. No, I don't have regrets. Um, no, I regret nothing at all. I actually almost wanted to sing it for you. It would kind of be funny, but um, you, you probably have heard it before. But sadly, Edith Piaf died at the age of, I believe, 44 um, in very poor health and suffered in a lot of ways. And so, of course, we can't know what was going through her mind exactly, but one could wonder, did she really not have any regrets? 
um, would she have done things differently in how she lived her life? So we, we get to this negativity bias, as I was mentioning before. Positive emotions, good. Negative emotions, bad, avoid. Um, but we want to recognize that that bias is going to lead us towards a bad life. If you only go towards the things that feel good in the moment and you avoid the things and the feelings that feel bad, you're going to live a very unfulfilled and unsatisfying life. You're just going to essentially be moved by the moment-to-moment pleasures or joys, um, which can feel good for moments but won't lead to a life you're going to feel good about. And so uh, Daniel Pink has done lots of research on regrets, asking people both a large-scale study in the United States and also around the world. Thousands of people have responded, sharing different things that they have regretted throughout life. And so what he found, uh, oftentimes when people do research like this, they try to boil down what they're finding into a few different categories or descriptors or way of looking at the specific issue. And so what he found was that there was four um, core or deep structure regrets that he explores in the book. So the first one is foundation or foundational regrets. The second one is boldness regrets. The third is moral regrets. And the fourth one is connection regrets. So foundation regrets come from this place of we need some kind of stability in our lives. We need a sense of taking care of ourselves health-wise, financially, education-wise, to build a good life, build that foundation. And so the regret here is I wish I did the work. So oftentimes people will say things like I could have gone to this graduate school program and I didn't, or I was wasteful with my money and my youth and now I'm older and I'm struggling uh, in these ways. So those are more the foundational regrets. The second category is boldness regrets. This is basically, I wish I took that risk. I wish I went for it. And this is a very common one that people can experience. And as they get to the end of their life, recognize I didn't take these chances in certain ways. I wish I started that business. I wish I approached that creative endeavor. I wish I even asked my crush out, that I, someone that I was interested in. He shares a story of two people that met on a train many decades ago and had an incredible experience, but then uh, weren't able to stay connected. So there's this that regret of, I wish I did more. I wish I got off the train with her, was his regret. So we see a lot of these. And the boldness regrets fall also into this category of things we wish we had done rather than things we regret that we did do. And we find that that is more the case, that people regret more things they didn't do than things they did do. It reminds me of a really nice quote by Mark Twain that encapsulates that concept. So we see a lot of these regrets of inaction more than regrets of action, something important to keep in mind as we live our life. We tend to face situations and we either can act or not act. We regret things uh, more that we didn't do in our lives when we look back, um, which can be something important to remember. The next category is moral regrets. These are things that I wish I did the right thing. So it could be cheating, whether it's infidelity to exams, to money things, uh, different transgressions that uh, different transgressions that we do. This is also a category of regret that he found. One of the regrets, I wish I did the right thing, is essentially the regret here. And the fourth category is connection regrets. This is relationships that um, we did not maintain, put enough effort in. 
Some people shared some stories like I, my grandparents would visit and I realized I would get annoyed and didn't value that time. And now they're gone and I wish I had spent more time in that relationship or spending more time with kids or, or family um, or staying in touch with friends and loved ones. And he shares about how many people have these regrets of a close friend they had in college or early in life and they drifted away. And here he differentiates that friendships or relationships tend to end in two categories, uh, rifts or drifts. So a rift means you had some kind of falling out, some fight, argument, disagreement, or betrayal that led to the end of the relationship. But what's more common is drifts, where over time people drift apart. And so that was a very common regret that came up as well, that people would not stay in touch. Just, we, you know, we say we drifted, we grew apart, things like that. And what was interesting is that what he found was that why people would not reach out, one of the main reasons was this sense of awkwardness. Well, won't it be so weird if after 10 years I called this friend up uh, and, and how will they respond? But what he actually found and what people find is that when people do, usually people feel really good about it. They think it's so nice. And actually he shares the story of this one woman and her friend from college who they drifted apart. And she does say, yeah, it feels so awkward after 20-something years reaching out to her and saying hello. How do I even begin that conversation? And then he turned it around on her and said, well, how would you feel if she reached out to you? And she said, oh, I would just be so touched and it would be so amazing. And he said, well, you know, if you think about it, more than likely that's the same thing she would feel. So that's another one to keep in mind that we tend to think if we reach out, it's going to be awkward or weird, but it's usually much less the case that that's going to happen. The person is usually happy and, and feels good. And I think we actually build things these build these things up too much. What do I even write in that first email? How do I encapsulate 25 years of not talking to each other? No, you can just say, was thinking of you, wanted to reach out, make it simple. Unfortunately, we often put too much pressure on ourselves to do certain things, and because of that, we do nothing at all. We don't check in on a friend who we know is not doing well because we don't know how to break the ice or how to say something or will I help them enough by the conversation, so we do nothing. And uh, often showing up is 50% of the work or whatever percentage you want to call it. This is kind of funny that I said 50% because Parham and I will be talking about quantifying certain things and how that could be misleading. But showing up can be a big part of what you can do uh, or what you need to do uh, and people would like to see from you is just to be there and show up. Now, what I also thought was uh, important in the book is he talks about ways to deal with regret and gives some um, advice or tips on that. If it's a regret of action, you can try to undo it or change the way you feel about it. Those two things you can do. If it's inaction, sometimes you can't go back, for example, to when you were 20 and st study harder, for example. But what can you do with that now? And so this is the part where um, looking back, of course, can help us in moving forward. So if we look back at our life, we can learn from those lessons. And this is another challenging issue for many people because he talks about this, that we don't want to just wallow in the feeling. So I think what people are afraid of is, well, if I regret, that means I'm just going to stay stuck in this bad feeling. I'm going to think back to what I did that wasn't good and beat myself up and, and not be able to move forward. And so if we can, we want to approach it with a non-judgmental mindset. And he does talk about self-compassion and how important that can be in helping us deal with this feeling of regret. But it, we don't beat ourselves up about it as much as we try to learn from it. You feel that negativity, it's there. 
but we don't just sit there by working through it. We actually can learn from it. And so he says feelings are for thinking. So we use the feelings to think, and then through the thinking we act. We, we, we act differently or we take some actions. And I thought this part of the book was interesting because something I do with my clients in therapy at times, when I see that they are, they seem to be stuck on something that they appear to really want, but they're resisting doing, let's say, uh, enter dating again after being hurt a few times or entering uh, the workforce in a certain way. And so I'll ask them to go forward, something that he brought up in this book, to when they're, let's say, 80, 85, and imagine their life and imagine what they might regret not doing in their life if they reflect on that. And at times they'll realize it's things like, you know, it would be upset or down if I never tried to be in a relationship or didn't give myself that opportunity. We can't guarantee it's going to happen, but we can give ourselves at least a chance. And so using regret that other way, so we can look back on our lives, and we should, but you can also try to go forward and reflect back on what type of life you want to live. And by using what he says is these main regret categories, um, foundational regrets, uh, boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets, we can then try to live a life that does not, that we will regret less. So I actually think it's interesting. We shouldn't think back on our life and think no regrets. We should go forward and think back and say, okay, I want to live a life that I will regret less. Or that won't, it won't have no regrets probably, but we'll have as little or few regrets as possible. So I think that's a very powerful tool to reflect on. To also recognize, am I letting my life be driven by the right things? What am I valuing? What am I doing? And importantly, what am I not doing that I might regret if I didn't do to make sure I do those things? So I really enjoyed this book. Uh, you know, there's so much to talk about in each section of it that I thought it was valuable. It's a pretty short book in the sense that it's like 210 pages or so. But there's a lot in there that I think you can get in understanding this often misunderstood emotion of regret and this sense that even though it feels negative in the moment, if we don't harness its powers and what it can inform us, both of what we've gone through, what we can learn going forward, uh, we might miss out on living the life we won't regret. So if we ignore regret, we might regret our lives more. So that was The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink. And again, after the break, I'll be joined by my brother, Parham. We'll discuss some issues related to economists and the mindset and psychology of economists, the good and the bad, and what we can learn from that. All right, we'll be right back. <clears throat> Welcome back. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm joined today by my brother, Parham Holakwi. We are going to be talking about some uh, topics related to economic thinking or the mindset or psychology of economists, um, obviously some things of it that are quite good, but then some areas where there might be limitations or ways that we can rethink some things. Uh, Parham has um, his law degree from Columbia University. He got his MBA from UCLA and a PhD from Berkeley University, I would say that way, University of California, Berkeley. And so he has a lot of educational background, specifically in economics, and so wanted to share his insights with you today. But, Pam, thank you for joining me. Uh, happy to be, be with you, Fadi. I'm um, nice. glad to be on your show. I'm a longtime listener. Longtime speaker also. We've, I've had the fortune of having you on many times. And so, yeah, we wanted to talk about this specifically because you have the 
experience and insight into the ways of thinking of the economic and ec- economist's mindset I mentioned. I saw I struggle with going back and forth between those two words. Um, and so first we can just start with when I hear economics, I think many people do, we think the economy and we think money and how money gets transferred or moved around. But that is a limited way of looking at what economists do. So maybe we can start there of what the field of economy, really what's the mindset is so we can get into it a little bit more. Yeah, so I think that's a natural extension of the term. When we think of economists, you, you do think of the economy, you think of markets, you think of money. Um, and, and that comprises a lot of economic thinking, a lot of economic research. But economics is also just a very uh, structured and rigorous way of evaluating human decision-making. So one, one definition of economics is just the allocation of scarce resources and the study of that. But we can begin to think about it in terms of how economic thinking can help us mm-hmm. as an individual. And through that, it's just through structured ways of thinking about decisions. For example, one principle is just cost-benefit analysis, which I think is something we naturally do without even thinking about it. When we're evaluating a decision, if I'm going to eat this ice cream or not, I'm evaluating the, the benefits. It's going to taste good. It's going to be a good experience. I'm going to enjoy. Maybe I have curiosity about what the taste is going to be like. And there's also costs to my physical health. Um, how am I going to feel afterwards? Is it going to ruin my appetite? So those are simple just things we do. But economists do that in a much more structured way. Mm-hmm. But that analytical way of thinking can be applied to even the simple decisions we make. Should I go on this date? Should I pursue this degree? Um, what time should I get up in the morning? All of these things can involve cost-benefit analysis. Another example of economic ways of thinking is opportunity cost. So when we evaluate a decision, we're thinking about it from the lens of, is this worth doing based on the costs and benefits? But we should also be looking at what the best available opportunity to that is. So for example, if someone is deciding whether or not to go to business school, they can think, well, this business school is going to cost me two years. It's going to cost me this amount of money and tuition. Um, is it worth it? But the decision should also encompass what's the best alternative course. So if going to business school means you're going to give up moving ahead in your career and your job, and that's going to create much, much more value than what you would get out of the, out of the MBA, perhaps you would decide to stay. So all of these decisions should, um, should also encompass what else could I be doing? And that's often missed. We often mm-hmm. miss that part of the analysis. It's like, well, if I do this, I'm also foregoing certain other things. Yeah, so it's a lot, as you're saying, decision-making is a big part of it um, as well. Of course, it includes the economy and studying that, but it's not limited to that. And there's, you know, it's interesting, you even said the, one of the definitions is the allocation of, was, it, was that the word? Mm-hmm. But of scarce resources, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Now, mm-hmm. of course, any resource in a way is finite, so we can say it's scarce, but scarce does have a certain judgment or it has an emotional valence to it that makes mm-hmm. you feel like we don't have enough. Mm. And so I don't know if, is that part of the definition is scarce is included in it? It is. Yeah. yeah. And so that scarcity is, is critical and it, it, you know, it is why we, when markets value things, scarcity is one of the key criteria to use mm-hmm. in determining mm-hmm. its value. Oxygen is abundant. We're not fighting over it, at least not on this planet. And so there's no price. There's no high price paid, paid for such things. Um, or, or having clean water, there's a price put on it, but it's pretty abundant. Um, there's things that are valued much more highly simply because of its, its scarcity. Diamonds are inherently scarce, and so they, they have higher value, not because of their utility, not because of what we can do with it necessarily. It's a combination of factors, but scarcity always plays a role. 
which is why when we over-index the financial value of something, perhaps we're putting too much emphasis on certain things, even if they don't align most with what we value most, what, what matters most to our life, what will make us most happy. We're, we're putting maybe undue emphasis on things that are scarce, one. Mm-hmm. And the second piece of that is it's a scarcity mindset um, that means if I get more of something, somebody yeah. else must be getting less. And that's just a way of looking out at the world. And there are certain things that are that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but many things are not. For many things, for example, if I'm giving love to someone, if I'm being generous to someone, um, there's a way in which I'm gaining something from that and maybe they're gaining something from that as well. And so it might be a what we call positive sum transaction in economics versus a zero-sum transaction. And zero-sum, you can only get more if somebody else somewhere is getting less. Mm-hmm. And looking at the world that way, the only way I can progress, the only way I can um, have more is someone else losing somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that just way of looking at the world, I think... Um, leads to perverse incentives and values and preferences in which even when we see someone else getting more, that means perhaps I'm getting less. Everything is seen with a scarcity mindset. If someone else is getting a higher status, is moving up in the job, that means that I'm somehow being left behind. Mm -hmm. So seeing other people succeed with the zero-sum mindset can be something that gives us angst. Yeah, and that's, you know, we talk about a scarcity versus abundance mindset and how that can affect how we approach things. Uh, and so if we have a scarcity mindset, there's always that, like the zero sum, this fear, this, you know, also it's like if I can get more, I should always get more. There's, And that's also another thing with, I think that comes through what you're talking about, that with the scarcity mindset in economics, something that I notice is just like if there's more, it's always good. There's mm-hmm. just like we found a thing that we need more of. And if, you know, when it's with, let's say, the economy or growth as measured in certain ways that we might even talk about mm-hmm. the ways we choose things uh, to measure things is very important. Um, and so more is always good. How could it be bad? And so the analogy we had talked about before was this sense that it can make sense because economics was important in, in the modern age of creating the type of comfort that people have in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so the analogy I like is that if someone is malnourished, giving them food is going to bring them to health. And then so it could give the sense that, well, more food for this person is health. And so we can just keep going and going with that. And obviously we get to the point where it's getting unhealthy, but because it seems like, no, this is always the path to goodness, we think that we have to just keep following it, even if it's actually leading to negative outcomes. And I think that's something we see with economics is this mindset that, first of all, the way we measure, which I want to definitely get into, what we consider growth and how it doesn't necessarily mean growth for everyone. And that's very important. Um, But there's also this, if it's more, it's good. And that's it. And we don't have to think of it in any other way. And because we can quantify it and it's more, which we'll also, I think, get into, that also makes it good. Okay, well, there's more. Look, it went up 4%. How could that be bad? Not looking at what does that mean as far as overall well-being, how have we affected the environment, how have we affected individuals, relationships, all sorts of things get neglected because we find one index and we overvalue that, which itself is kind of funny because we talk about economics and making decisions, but what are the decisions within economics of what to approach and study? Um, But that mindset of just more is always good, obviously is an unhealthy one in almost any domain. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point is that we over-index or over-rely on things that we can measure, things that are easily quantified. And we also have trouble shifting the game that we're playing or the things that we emphasize. I think that shift is often troubling. So like you said, 
more wealth has led to human flourishing. You know, we've been able to take people out of abject poverty. If you think of someone as like just a, a poor village, giving them money, giving them financial resources is the best way, the most efficient way to begin to, to help them. So clearly there, more money equals more happiness, more well-being. And you continue to play that game out. And then you reach a point, let's say, where we are in the United States or another Western economy, where we still play that game of more is better, more money, more financial resources will lead to more human flourishing, more well-being. But in fact, maybe it's not. And maybe we're putting too much emphasis on that thing, on that metric, let's say money, because it's easily quantified, one, and two, because it's worked up to now. And so it seems like if it's worked up to now, why would we, why would we stop doing that? And unfortunately, what the data shows is that we have continuing, let's, let's use GDP as the, as the value, so continuing economic growth, continuing economic progress, we have more than people you know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago did, the average person. And yet, if you look at the last 10 years, 20 years, rates of mental illness are on the rise, rates of depression, rates of anxiety, rates of suicide are on the rise. And so we're getting richer, and yet our well-being, based on some, again, measures... And some of these are difficult to measure. They're intangible. How happy are people? What's, what's people's well-being? Mm-hmm. We can get into what economists do and other social sciences do to begin to measure those things. But it seems that based on at least a few metrics that we look at, we're not happier, mm-hmm. despite the fact that we have more wealth. The, the fact that we have so much more and yet feel like there's something missing in our lives mm-hmm. today. Yeah, which I think is a pretty clear indication that more wealth is not going to make you happier, not well-being. And even when I heard you say it, and that's how it's usually presented, is we're wealthier, and despite that, we're not happier, as if there should be this, because we've made that such a clear connection in our mind that that's how it should be, and how could it not be? Because that's how it's presented, and that's how we feel, and more money, more happiness. Um, But it's like, obvious. it's almost like, to me, it's like, well, you were thirsty before, and now you have 500 gallons of water and you only need like, let's say, 64 ounces. And it's like, how are you not happy? You have 500. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't, more of that yeah. is not going to make me happy. There's other things I need. And I think that's what we see happening is when, and it was, there wasn't enough of things. And, you know, even we can tie it into like a hierarchy of needs, Maslow mm-hmm. or, you know, in other ways. Well, yeah, you need to have those basic ones met, um, you know, well-being, safety, uh, biological needs, all those kinds of things. And then once those are met, more of that isn't going to make you feel better. There's other things you need, but we can get stuck in that really, the more base level. And that's kind of what you see is with overconsumption. It's like we're just staying on those base ones, like more of those things that you need to survive, but it doesn't make you survive more. It's actually killing us in a paradoxical way. Yeah. Um, but that becomes our driving force when it's not going to lead to that greater sense of well-being that we have more access to now those possibilities for. So anytime something comes up that seems to touch on another economic term or principle, I'm going to throw it in. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. So this is the concept of diminishing marginal returns, which I I know many have heard of. But um, using ice cream again, that first ice cream feels really, really good. The second one feels a bit less good. The third one, the fourth one, at some point, it doesn't really do much for us at all. So there's diminishing returns to most things. Most things begin to have some, some, um, the benefit that we get from it depletes over the, the, every additional one that we get. And so here, it's clear, right? So water, um, having enough water when you need clean water is obviously extraordinarily important. But there comes a point at which the water is not only not benefiting us, it might be harming us. Yeah. Um, and certainly with certain things, uh, food. You know, we today live in a world in which for the first time in human history, basically, more people die from 
eating too much than eating too little. That's very, very new. More people die from killing themselves through suicide than through violent crimes that exist in the world. This was not the case before. Most of the harms of the past, of our ancestral past, of humanity for, throughout the course of human history has come from without, from outside. Those are the threats we face. And I think today, particularly in advanced economies, the threats come from within. They come from within. And that's why I think mental health, mental well-being becomes so, so crucial. And also why this is the point where I think really, really focusing on here is how if we over-index on money and other things that we can measure as our, our signals of success, as our signals of happiness that may not correlate with what we actually care about, it actually can lead us astray. We can be selling our happiness and our physical health to get more money, mm-hmm. our emotional health to get more money, our sense of connection with the people that we care most about to have more status or more fame. Yeah, and it always almost feels like it's always the right thing to do, even from an economic mindset. At times, it can almost make it rational to make more because money is this thing. We'll, we'll get into that. We are uh, at a commercial break. And also, when you're saying, you know, you said the law of diminishing returns and you talked about it, well, you'll get less pleasure, but it's also a missing point where it actually might be hurting you. It's not just mm-hmm. about less pleasure. It could be harmful to have more, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that could be uh, problematic. So we'll explore these types of concepts a little bit more. Again, joined by my brother, Powerhome. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So joined by my brother Powerhome today, we're talking about economists and economic mindset. And obviously, we don't want to just talk about it in a negative way. There's so much, as you were talking about before, that it contributes to looking at things in a systematic way, approaching things and decision-making and a lot of, and it's gotten more into when you look at econometrics, systematically studying things and bringing new new insights into what's working and not working in a variety of fields. Um, even like uh, Emily Oster, who is an economist, she's written some great books on parenting and child rearing that I think are great. And essentially what she's doing is using, using her training as an economist to look through all the data and boil it down to some key points and understandings that a parent could then take to make the best decisions for their family. So uh, we do want to make that point, or I want to make sure I make that point clear, that there's a lot of good in the economic mindset and thinking, and it's contributed so much. We're also looking at what are some of the negative effects or impacts, which is going to be true of any field, especially any type of social science uh, that we, we can find. And maybe that's something we can turn to a bit of like social sciences in general. And one of the main issues you're always going to have in a social science is quantifying because that's how we can do statistics and do some of the systematic studies that we do. But we're trying to quantify human experience or human value, human life, human emotions. Um, And when you quantify them, of course, there's a lot that can be missed and a lot that might be taken away. So that itself, I think, can be um, leading to some of the things that we're talking about today and some of the issues that come up is this quantification, which might be a necessity, but recognizing its shortcomings. This is an inherent limitation of economics and all the social sciences. Often when you're studying uh, human behavior, it's much less clear what the metrics Mm -hmm. should be. So in physics, it's much clearer. You have clear measures and it's a little bit more uh, limited and refined what the measure needs to be. With human behavior, for example, if you're studying happiness it becomes much more of a creative endeavor to be able to find indexes, measures, things that we can use 
that approximate what happiness is. Why? Because we can't just have a measure for happiness. We can ask people, and that's one of the things that they do. As they ask people how they feel, they'll use things like a life satisfaction survey. They'll, they'll have something where they'll um, measure people's emotional mood. Seven, eight times a day, they'll ask them, how do you feel right now? Uh, between a scale of one through ten. So we, we find ways to approximate these things, but it's inherently difficult because those measures are not going to be precise. They're not going to exactly mat- match what it is that we actually care about. And the problem there is we become over-reliant on that measure. Mm-hmm. We care too much about that and sometimes at the to the neglect of other really important features or factors. So this is just one of the things that makes social sciences a bit more challenging in certain ways, but we're asking big, big questions. And so it's really, it's still useful. Even if we get some insight, some uh, glimpse of something useful or meaningful that comes from that, even if it's not altogether as precise as physics, it can be really, really helpful because if it can guide us to living a better life, to living a healthier life, Mm -hmm. to living a life with more well-being and more connection, then it's still worthwhile. It's still worthwhile to do that. But it's important to do two things. One is to have a measure that closely aligns with the thing that we actually care about. If we're measuring happiness, is our metric really measuring happiness in the way that we think about it? Or is it missing some really important things? And can we make it a more all-encompassing measure that accounts for all of the factors and features we care about? And the second thing is to recognize its limitations. To think, okay, this is an approximation for happiness, but we know that we're missing all of these other important variables or factors. Mm-hmm. And, and it's even, do we want to measure happiness? Why? That's kind of a, it becomes, it's like, that's the most important thing. And so what we choose to even measure or look at is, is something really um, significant as well. Oh, happiness is good. You feel good. That's good. Is that what a good life is? Is that what well-being is about? It brings up some really foundational questions of what we're studying, how we're studying it, what we want to look at. And I think that also happens to we oversimplify both in quantifying and in looking at what's what's good and what we should look at. And we can also bring up here, at least briefly, there's qualitative research, too, that happens in especially social sciences. So mm-hmm. in qualitative research, for example, someone interviews a lot of people in a, and, and not just interviews to then do surveys to get numbers and quantities, but just to glean some things from them, understand some things from people. And of course... This can be more biased or it's less systematized in a certain way because it's not quantified. But as I was thinking of that, it also makes me realize, well, that is partially our fallacy that when we do things quantitatively, there aren't any biases. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we do reduce some aspects of biases or some ways they come up, but it's not that there's no bias because we make things quantitative, which I think is part of the issue is that once we see numbers, it makes it feel like these concrete, real things – which there is some of that, but a lot more of it, it includes the bias baked mm-hmm. into it, but we just think we have these numbers, so we're good. Let's just go with these numbers. That's a great point. So we'll look at, for example, let's say a measure of happiness in this country versus this country. And this country averages 7.2 out of 10, and this country averages 8.3 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And we think, oh, well, clearly, because it's numeric, it seems unbiased. Mm-hmm. It seems like we're just comparing two numbers in an unbiased way, and so we can clearly compare those two things. The problem, though, is the bias comes in the determination of what that measure should be. Mm -hmm. What is used to determine that number of 7.2? What factors are missed? So that's where the bias has come in, is maybe over-relying on certain factors or variables and neglecting others. That's where the bias is. Obviously, there's no bias between number 8.3 and 7.2, but it gives us the the false illusion that this has been done in a way that's bias-free or it's done without any values. There are values embedded in that number. Mm -hmm. Similarly with something like GDP, 
right? So that's a measure of economic growth. It seems like it's objective. We can compare one country to another in an apples to apples way. But what have we, is that the measure we want to use that encompasses a society flourishing and thriving and creating well-being for its citizens? Is that encompassing that? Uh, obviously, any number, any metric we use is going to be limited. But is it limited in really profound and important ways? Mm-hmm. Are we neglecting really key things? Yeah, and that's the, you know, the hard part. Like even when you talk about the happiness, the the quantities makes us feel something. So many things get involved when you, let's say, are studying people, and you say report on your happiness. You, you there's cultural effects, and maybe in one culture, it's not good to show you're too proud of your life, or in another culture, it's even more important that you are very grateful for what you have. So you should say you're feeling, let's just say, you know, so this also gets to other issues of when we do self-report and other things, how how it can affect research. And we have to be aware of those limitations. But that quantity bias, that quantifiable bias, I've just seen it so much when I look at research or studies and say, oh, these people were at a 40, they're at a 44. And what does that even mean? And they do look at things like effect size and external validity and other type of research, mm-hmm. like methods or research um uh, concepts that are important and they do look at, but I think when we see those numbers that it fools us into thinking we're seeing something so clear and so real mm-hmm. when it could at least partially be an illusion. And so yeah. we're not saying don't quantify things, of course not, but I think it's so important to recognize what we're doing when we do that. We're taking something and translating it and then looking at it as if it's like this real thing mm-hmm. and realizing there was a translation process, which means Things get lost in translation, as is always the case, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. that's the part to me that I've I've realized. So it's like the quantifying part is one, and also that bias that we have towards things you can quantify easily, which includes money, which is something we'll talk about when we look at um, economics. Uh, but that to me is a, is a big part. Is like we have this bias towards that, and then the bias of when when we try to quantify things and seeing it as real. So those are just a few of those. Themes. I see you smiling, so I think you got something. Well, I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to save economics and even the broader social sciences for a moment here. So I, I think, um, in light of all of our the criticisms and the critiques are are very valid and important. But there's also heroic work that's sure. been done in the social sciences, and there's been so much progress that can be attributed to finding ways to measure things that are difficult to measure, finding creative strategies empirically to identify what it is that we actually care about. Because if we can't, you know, you, um, in general, people will put more emphasis on things that we measure. So if it's, um, if it's quantified things that exactly measured and quantified. So if it's, um, the money, the money in the bank account, Mm -hmm. that's an easy thing to measure. It's a clear signal to yourself and to others of how well you're doing in your life. You will put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, things like, how connected are you to the people that you love? It's difficult to measure that. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you even find a nice... You're not going to be able to open up an app on your phone like you can with your bank and see exactly what your status is. Did, the, uh, yep. did, did your portfolio of, of investments go up by 1% or 2%? It's difficult to do that with your you know, relationship with your children, loved ones, friends. But perhaps, and according to the happiness research itself that we're criticizing... <laughs> Um, we're not criticizing, but the, you know, we're recognizing its limitations. It's actually been extraordinarily powerful. But that happiness research suggests that the thing that's going to affect your happiness far more are the connections, mm-hmm. much more than making 10% or 100% or 200% more money. So we put more emphasis on the thing that's easily measured. It's what humans naturally do. And we neglect the other things. But it is still 
extremely powerful to be able to use measurement. And it's been a huge progress in, in the social sciences, especially with how much data we have access to today. So we're able to, if we can creatively use that data and find useful insights in there that can help guide our behavior and help us, it can be really powerful. It's just, I think what we're, I think really suggesting is important is recognizing its limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the, obviously, I've, I'm so grateful for all the people that do social science research, psychology, sociology, economics, all those. It's so important and, and I value it highly in a quantitative and qualitative <laughs> way. I really do value it because of what it contributes. Uh, people studying happiness, well-being, I think that's so important. I think what, what we're pointing out is recognizing limitations and this bias of the quantifiable. It it does mean so much. Even when you're saying, okay, someone's like, I want to improve my life. I want to make my relationships better. It's so qualitative and unclear. Like you can try to rate it and and do things, which has some value. It doesn't mean rating things has no value. Of course it does. But if you look at your bank account, it's very clear. Oh, I had 50,000, now I have 70,000. I can clearly measure and even a percent improvement. And all those metrics make us feel, even like as I'm saying, it feels comfortable to get a readout of how you improved. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, I just feel better when I'm around my child. It's like, what is that? How do you measure that? How does that mean? Or they feel better around me? Mm-hmm. That lack of being able to quantify it, it's understandable. There's something, because we can't grasp it in a clear way, yeah. it can feel like something is missing. Whereas in things that we can quantify, there's a comfort in we know what we did showed tangible, you know, quantifiable yes. means tangible results. Yeah. And that feels really comforting and good. So it feels like that's not a waste because we see this impact. We're going back to opportunity costs. What else could you have done to improve your life that maybe was less measurable in that same way? Yeah, and I think the reason to keep emphasizing this, I know we've, we've harped on this, is that what it leads to is neglecting those things, mm-hmm. neglecting the things that are intangible and difficult to measure. And, and so we put less emphasis on those things. It's the reason why it's like almost become um, you know, this common theme, this almost story of the person who overworks, becomes a workaholic, and loses connection with their family, with their kids. It's become such a common thread mm-hmm. in, for example, the, the capitalist economy that we have. We see that happening over and over again. People neglecting their own well-being, their own physical health, because they want more money. What are they doing there? They're putting more of their emphasis on the thing that can be e- easily measured. They've had success in that, so it kind of reinforces their desire and their motivation to continue on that. And we're neglecting other things simply because... It's more difficult to measure. We don't have a clean way of, of approaching that. With physical health, for example, right now, we have more things that track us and we have things that track our physical health in ways that can be measured, that try to approximate what our physical health goals are. That also tends to be a little bit, you know, not completely one-to-one and clear, but it gives us some indication, some signals of whether we're making progress and lessons we can use for the future. But with things like relationship, with things like meaning, I think that's when we need to do the work. Yeah. And, maybe- and, and that work is tough. And it might even mean quant- you know, this is where we can almost sound like we're, there's an irony or we're like, you know, we have to be aware of. Because some of it is we might quantify some of those things that we're saying are important too. So mm-hmm. it's not to say quantifying is always the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. But it's realizing that qu- things that are easily quantifiable become more uh, pronounced in the way we look at our lives and measure things. Someone mm-hmm. like you are saying, someone's like, well, if I work this weekend, I'll make $500 more for my, you know, mm-hmm. for my family and taking care of them. Whereas like spending time with them, you don't get some clear number of, you know, relationship points or, you know, connection points. And, and so it is recognizing, I think that's what we're saying is that one of the issues is we have to be aware of how we can get lulled into a comfort with the numbers that 
it means we have to stay in this more challenging space of the, some more unknown, some are unquantifiable. doesn't mean anything goes and we're promoting chaos and everything is the same, but it's recognizing that some things that matter we can't measure so clearly or we haven't been able to, or you know, we're still learning how to, um, but things that are easily quantifiable can mislead us into thinking those are the most important things. So we are at another commercial break. After the break, I'll continue the discussion with Parham. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I'm joined today by my brother Parham, and we're talking about some um, concepts, ideas that come from economics, economic mindset, the good and the bad of it, and social sciences in general. And so we have made this point a few times that it's, of course, we value social sciences very much, and we think it's very important, and oftentimes we do have to quantify things, and that can be really important, but recognizing those limitations at times or what comes up when you quantify something and now it feels so real, the numbers, but what is it reflecting in, in real life or actual human experience? And so one area we can go to specifically with economics and, and numbers is things like economic growth, GDP, and the ways that it tends to be measured. And it's another one of those that, okay, well, if there was economic growth, people feel good. It gives us some sense of comfort, but what does that mean, or is that really what, what should matter? So I wanted to get some of your thoughts on that, on, on how we look at it, what it means. Even GDP, I mean, gross domestic product. We don't have to get into the technical terms mm-hmm. um, if you don't want to. Obviously, I don't know if that's even significant to the conversation or relevant. But I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so uh, something like GDP. If we think about it, let's just really, really make it micro. Um, and I remember this happening like uh, – when I was working as a lawyer, you would get paid by the hour. And there's certain lawyers that they could really like quantify every hour of their time is worth X dollars, let's say $1,000. And that's their contribution, in a sense, to, to the economy. It's, it's the best contribution that a lawyer can make to the economy if we're strictly looking at it from an economic perspective is for them to practice law. But imagine if they're sitting there thinking about whether to go to their child's soccer game on a Saturday morning. That's not going to create any economic benefit. They're going to sit there and watch their child. And from an economics perspective, it makes sense for them to bill an hour, to go and to, to work another hour. And I remember this even sort of swaying people's decision-making. It was very difficult for them, knowing that they're at, let's say, some leisure activity with their child, knowing that I could be making $1,000 right now. Is this worth $1,000 to watch mm-hmm. my kid fumble around with a soccer ball? And it just... This is the problem of over-quantifying, mm-hmm. I think, is when you begin to quantify experiences all throughout, and that ends up being sort of the way you measure. Some things are depleted when they're measured. Let me, mm-hmm. Like if, if, for example, we're talking about uh, generosity between friends. You, know, you invite somebody over to your house, and then they invite you to their house. If things are measured, if you have like a tally and, and you tell them, hey, you know what, I'm inviting you to my house because if you remember two weeks ago, you invited me to my house and this is supposed to be compensated for that. It, it kind of reduces the value of the gesture. Um, so, so some things, the moment that they're quantified, it actually depletes their value. Um, imagine if someone's like, I'll be your friend. I really like hanging out with you. And because your friendship is so valuable, I'm going to pay you $40 an hour just to be here with me. If that makes you more likely to hang out with me than the other friend, it's worthwhile. The moment you've done that, I mean, it's a crazy thing to do. 
And it's partly because the moment you've added a, a number or a quantity to that, it depletes the, the very nature of what you're doing, which is just two people enjoying each other's company and, and connecting in a way that's not really based on money. Money tarnishes it. And so, so many things do that. So thinking about it from the GDP standpoint, obviously GDP misses a lot of things. It, um, it comprises, um, it's, a, it's a decent measure of economic productivity and production capacity, but it's not necessarily going to be the measure we want to use to determine the well-being of a society. Perhaps it is, let's say, for a very poor country that's in a high, high, high growth phase and, and has many, many people in poverty. If you look historically to a country like that, their GDP growth is pretty well aligned with the well-being of their people. You've taken people out of extreme poverty. You're feeding people. You're giving people shelter. You're giving them education and health care. GDP is really... closely measuring, not perfectly, but it's a close approximation of all of that progress, all of that well-being that's being enhanced. And we have to concede that economic growth and even markets have led to a lot of human flourishing. We've taken, it's taken a lot of people out of uh, very, very poor living conditions into much more advanced conditions. And the issue, though, becomes when we continue to rely on a measure that is missing so many core, core facets of what we care about. One obvious one is just the distribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. So if we have more GDP or more economic growth, but that's more and more increasingly in the hands of a tiny, tiny percentage of the population, that's obviously problematic because the well-being of society has not been enhanced. And we even have evidence to suggest that when people, when there's more disparities in income, mental health is lower, you have more violence, a lot of other things, even if you have, let's say, the same overall wealth, even if people are just as wealthy, mm-hmm. but if there's people that have substantially more and they look and they see that they sort of are deprived in some way, that leads to a lot of negative things as well. So GDP doesn't measure that. It doesn't measure the distribution of, of wealth. It doesn't measure um, a mother taking care of their child, a father taking care of their child. That doesn't, that's not measured there. And it also does measure... Um, you know, if we have a much, much, let's say, sicker society where we're eating really bad foods and we're not taking care of ourselves, but medical bills are going up, that increases GDP. GDP is higher if we have more ambulances, more hospitals uh, taking care of patients. So it's, it, it also measures pollution. You know, uh, if, if uh, well, not measures pollution, but if pollution is the outcome of really, really high production, <clears throat> GDP is not going to be any lower because of the harmful environmental effects of increasing production. Yeah. So it misses a lot of things and it includes a lot of things that we don't care about. Yeah. It, it's like you said, it's uh, going back to that malnourished and nourished kind of a mindset. It could be helpful in measuring some things or in certain circumstances, but it misses so much. And a big one for me, as you touched on is the inequality. You're talking about GDP and how in a country that's developing its economy, let's say, or there are, there's a lot of poverty. It can really, be a correlate, a strong correlation with that and overall well-being of many people. But if you look at the United States, I, I definitely don't have the specific numbers, but growth, economic growth seems to be very unrelated at this time to how many people are experiencing poverty and what they experience. You know, things like economic inequality will be much bigger factors in determining that. So the economy goes up 5%, 6% in a year, and it's like, oh, that's good. We had a good year. Let's move forward. But it's like, well, if more people are in poverty or if their lives didn't change, what are we measuring? And so this is going back to another topic we, or, or topic we did want to talk about, which is 
we always have values in what we measure. I think sometimes when we think it's quantified, well, GDP is just GDP has no values in it, but it is valuing certain things over other things. And we have to be aware of just because it's another one of those biases. I think it's important when we quantify things just because it's quantified doesn't mean it's amoral or a valued or just it's just a number. It itself is embedded with it. The fact that we're choosing to measure that and to make that significant and a measure of how we measure our progress it has values in it no matter what. We can't get away from that. It's going to have some kind of values embedded in it. And so we want to be mindful of the values we choose. Mm -hmm. And I think unfortunately, because of the history of how things, this was the most important thing, it just stays the most important thing, even though it might be missing, as you said, so many important things and measuring so many things that might not have really value anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think to push back a bit on, I mean, is, is GDP irrelevant? I don't think so. I think it's still a very, very important measure, even for the most advanced economies, even for the United States. And there is a very, very loose, um, not not deeply connected connection between rising GDP and overall well-being. I mean, if we put everything else aside, I'd rather a country in which GDP is growing, in which there is growth, because that provides more resources to use for all kinds of things, more for the more for those who are doing well, and those who don't. If you have more GDP, a country with more of it, a country with more production, a country with greater economic uh, productivity is able to provide more for people. So the connection is still there. The problem is that, like you said, it's, it's embedded with certain values. <clears throat> so it's not, it's not a, a, fact, a measure that is completely void of certain, you know, the, the decision on what to measure embeds values. It embeds what we prioritize. And so if we've used the same measure from the this GDP was basically, it was, the ni- it was 1940. And it was actually when we were in World War II and this was happening in the United States and in, and in Britain as well. They wanted to find some measure to encompass the country's overall productive capacity and production for the year. And which is another example. In times of war, GDP is very, very high. The whole war making capacity involves a lot of production. All resources are put towards manpower and, and, and physical resources. Our productive capacity is put towards the war effort, especially in a massive war uh, of that scale. And all of that is being put to use to destroy the other side, to win the war. Even if it's a war in which you, you believe that this side should win, ultimately, better to live in a society with lower GDP and no war than one in which you have GDP flying through the use through the roof, really, really high growth, and all of those resources are being put to effectively killing the other side, killing yeah. another group of people. And so that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's not to say, is it good or is it bad? It's like, it's very much a thing, but a very small slice of understanding. It's like, because even you said, you can take care of more people, but then if you don't, then what's the point of having more GDP, right? That's that's the issue I always have with it. It's like, oh, there's growth, okay, and that means better because there's more things. It's like, like, okay, but if people are dying from avoidable things, um, it's it actually, maybe I, I'm going to go to this because it's such a powerful, I think, connection. Mm-hmm. You're saying we'll put so much money to invest to go to war to kill the other side, mm-hmm. but what we see is we don't put a lot of resources to take care of and save the people in our own country, mm-hmm. which we could do. We could have a war on, you know, the wars on usually don't work, but a war on poverty really is what we could have where it's like okay people are like dying from not having enough let's just like you know get everything in motion to help those who are poor 
but we don't do that. But to kill the other side, which is, yes, we think to preserve ourselves and, and our well-being, we will change the whole function of the economy. And I think that's something that's why I think it's not to say GDP is bad, but if we look at that and say we're done, I think we're missing so much. And again, there's always going to be values here. For me, the value is if the inequality is huge, that we should not let that be significant and we should minimize that. That should be a big, 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 that's more important than growth mm -hmm. to me in my way of looking at things. And now, yeah, more growth might even allow you to take care of inequality more because you have more to take care of more people. But if you have more growth and inequality grew, to me, that's a bad year. You know, you did poorly as a country that year. You can say, oh, we had 8% growth. What an amazing year. But if it all went to the hands of certain people and many more people are suffering, mm -hmm. that to me is just really like, what are we What are we even doing? What are we measuring? And this is what I mean by we can get lulled to sleep by the, you know, the numbers like, oh, 7% growth, 8% growth. What a great year for the economy. And miss that literally what that also means is kids were dying from things that we could have saved them from, but we feel like we did a good job. So that's where I think I recognize the limits in those things. So it's not to say GDP has no meaning, but it's a measure, but it can become the measure that, you know, indicates how a country did economically with its resources. Yeah, th there's an analogy I like that uh, talks about how in social sciences, particularly economics, there's a tendency to focus on where, where the data is and on things that are easily measured like money and GDP. Is the drunkard who's looking for his keys, someone who's drunk, looking for his keys and they find him and he's just sitting under the lamppost he's sitting on the lamppost he keeps looking for his keys in there and they ask him did you leave your keys by the lamppost he said no 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 it's just this is where the light is mm -hmm. so <laughs> he's spending all of his time looking there even though there's no reason to believe that that's exactly where his keys are because that's where the light is the data is where the light is money is where the light is that's so easy to measure and so it's easy to get preoccupied with that that one thing that we can measure but if we're really looking for the keys, and here, if we're really looking for well-being, how do we enhance overall happiness for a society? We can't just be looking under the lamppost because that's where it's lit. But that's also where we're putting the light in this case, right? It's not just like it's not measurable to measure inequality or these things. So it's, you know, that's a big oh. where, and the people who have the lights pay, <laughs> they're paying the electricity, so they mm -hmm. put it where they want to measure it. So. You know, that you're right. There's some places where we have data, some places we don't. But in this case, we're not people that are, oh, GDP 7%. It's not that they can't see anything else. That's the only place they're shining their light to measure mm -hmm. that. Because uh, there are, there's a, we were talking about the Gini coefficient, which itself is uh, an inequality measurement, but a very crude one because it's mm -hmm. like one number, let's say. But there's way, way more ways to look at it, but it's what are we valuing? So that's what I'm, you know, and we have to go to commercial break and we talk more about, we have to recognize that. What we measure has values and morals and, 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 and biases in it. There's no just like, mm -hmm. well, and I think people think, well, if it's GDP, it's just a number. I'm not, I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just measuring this thing. I'm not putting my values on it. But inherently, it does have certain values. It benefits certain people more than others. Mm -hmm. It does value certain things and, and human experiences more than others or human development in certain ways or the way that the world is going. And so that's something that we have to recognize and I think we have to be more conscious and mindful of recognizing the values are there what are the values we're choosing rather than the ones that we think are default there's always going to be something that that's a default that we choose but let's go to another commercial break we'll continue after a few minutes welcome back so my brother Parham and i we've been talking on a variety of topics related to beginning with economic thinking and mindset and how that relates to other things quantifying things and how that can course be very meaningful to study things related to the social sciences and human experience but what we 
of course, we can gain something from being able to study it in a certain way, but we lose something or we have to be aware of those limitations as well. Maybe a different direction we can go into these last couple of segments or another uh, area I think is always important when we look at economics and rational thinking. And so there's classical or traditional economics, which uh, has what is it called homo economists or something where it's like people just make the best rational decisions all the time and they're they're doing that in every moment and then there's been now behavioral economics a whole field that challenges that so i don't know if you want to share some thoughts on that this traditional rational because i think it also relates to some of these things we've talked about and how we measure things and how we look at things but that traditional rational um economic approach versus a behavioral which might combine both the human experience as well yeah well i mean historically history of economics it began with a very noble noble endeavor is to can we create a common language where we can begin to understand uh let's say consumer decisions or just how markets mm-hmm. work and so one one way that was advocated is presume that people are making uh, rational decisions so when they decide to make a particular consumer purchase that's the optimal decision for them let's presume that and it's um a principle known as revealed preference so if someone decides I'm going to buy this home with the money that I have, we presume that that's the optimal thing for them to do, that they've taken account of the costs and benefits, the alternatives, the opportunity cost, and the decision they've made is, a, is the proper one. The problem with that, and this was, beginning, this was challenged by what was a field known as behavioral economics, which was integrating um, other behavioral sciences, particularly psychology, into how we evaluate economic decision-making. And fundamentally, it comes down to the fact that one of the assumptions, which is that we're rational, human beings are rational actors making the best decision to lead to the best possible outcomes for ourselves, is inherently flawed Mm -hmm. and flawed in systematic ways. So the rebuttal that the neoclassical economists would have is that, but on average, what better approximation do we have than what people are revealing themselves to do, presuming that they're being rational? The problem is human beings are not... We haven't evolved to make decisions that make us most happy and that best align with what we care about. We often do things, things, you know, extreme examples of that are things like addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Someone who is choosing to smoke, pack several packs a day and is going to have an early death because of that. Are we presuming that through revealed preference, that's the best way to spend their $12? Is to go buy packs of, I don't know how much cigarettes cost, but is that the best thing for them to do? And clearly it seems like there's something missing here. There's some ways in which we are systematically biased in ways that lead us to take decisions, whether it's about money or other things. How we, someone who's a workaholic and works 90 hours a week and is hurting their physical health to make 40% more money than they made last year. Does that make sense? Is that rational? People are doing it. And this, I think, goes back to this idea that the problems of today are coming from within, not from without. We have abundance. We talked about abundance versus scarcity. We live in the most abundant time in human history today. From a financial standpoint, um, we have luxuries that even kings and pharaohs couldn't imagine. So we have enough. The problems we have today come from within. So it's about sort of tweaking this rational model mm-hmm. in economics. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when I hear the, you know, this is going to sound bad maybe it's almost laughable to me just like everyone's doing the most rational thing i mean first of all you have to define what rational means which i think people can't really define in a clear way what does that mean because it's so complex and i think that's why i actually get frustrated 
in therapy, sometimes you'll have a, you know, a couple come in and say, oh, I'm rational and she's emotional. That's the more common thing is the male to think they're rational because they value that and feelings are not good. But no, no one is. What does that even mean uh, to be rational? Yes, to do what's in your best interest even. What does that mean? It's very complicated. And to think that feelings aren't involved is essentially impossible. But that this mindset that people are just making the best even economic choice it has to be rational. Um, it's, I think, important to look at it as some kind of ideal or uh, you know, theoretical, which can have value, but then to think that that means people are making those decisions all the time. And we've talked about this before, you know, that revealed preference to me, it's revealed immediate preference, mm. you know, so people do show us what they want to do. Often they'll make a better long-term decision, but yeah, an, an addict is making a revealed uh, immediate preference, which is to go back to the substance that does hurt them, but because they're dependent on it and all these things, they feel this strong need or this pain when they don't have it so immediately does help them in the long term it hurts them and so that's i think another one of those issues i could have is that this the mindset becomes so in the moment and it values certain things like money like you've talked about before about if you're going to go watch uh you know your the son play a soccer game but you can make a thousand dollars working what what's worth what you know and putting money as the ultimate quantifier of things. Sometimes that also happens with utilities, like how much is something worth? And I think that inherently makes money the measuring stick of everything. Well, if there's more money, it has to be better. You don't have to even think about anything else, or at least you can justify your reasons, right? I, well, I had more money there. Okay, no one's going to ask you anything. But if you say, well, it felt better to do this. I felt I'd be closer to my family. It's like, we're going to need more explanation, or we've got to make sure, and maybe that was stupid or irrational. So mm-hmm. um, I know I jumped a bit. I was very irrational in, in what very I shared. Very irrational, yeah. actually. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, that to me is an interesting thing. When we, We've talked before about this because you've studied behavioral economics in depth. That to me it's always almost laughable, this mindset that it's like this traditional way of thinking that it's like people are just making the most rational decisions all the time. Uh, again, what does rational mean? But also that, that they're going to make the best decisions for themselves, I think is laughable when we look at human experience. Wow, that's an attack. That's it an, is. It's an attack on neoclassical economics. And let me try to, um, it's good to sometimes, and I guess this is what you get trained to do is when you're in law school is you have to defend the side even if you don't completely align with right. it. But, you no, but should, it's important to share. I mean, obviously well, I know there's value in it, but yeah, it's good for you to present that, that well, side of it. Well, not only that, I think it's important to know the weaknesses of your argument sure. better than your opponent and to know their strengths, hopefully better than they do. If you're already anticipating and recognizing all of the strengths they had, I, I like, you know, there's this concept of uh, the straw man argument where you really like bring down your opponent to a really, really small, almost easily defeatable version of themselves and then you then you crush it and that's seen as, as a fallacy an argument that's not really really a persuasive argument if you break it down but it's, it's even better to do the opposite which is you strong strong man what's it called you you make them as strong as possible mm-hmm. you make them that you make the strongest possible case for your opponent and you defeat that you concede this is this is you at your strongest and i still believe there's flaws so with all of that preamble um i think even the best uh, neoclassical economist and there's they you know this obviously was the history of economics but many still subscribe to that today many very prominent powerful and influential economists what they would argue is that of course human beings are not always making perfectly rational decisions this is true but we have no better measure than to presume that they are being rational so i don't know for sure that this person purchasing that car is the best possible decision. In fact, of course, there's what, what Herbert Simon, the economist, said is bounded rationality, 
we only have so much we can't sit there and pour over every variable every mm-hmm. factor when we're deciding what car to buy at some point we just get a shortcut it felt good i bought it because that would just take too much time it's not worth the additional time it takes to overanalyze every single variable or factor in making that decision and so at some point we just make a shortcut and we decide what we're going to do the argument that the economists would make these neoclassical economists would say that rationality or presuming rationality is the best we can do. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is, is over-indexing on things that we can easily measure. Rationality from the economist's perspective would be this is, there's no better measure we have than this, because then it gets really messy and really noisy to try to presume, okay, yes, they're rational, but also we begin to embed too many other variables and factors, and then it becomes too complicated. Right, but then, so it's like, because relationships are complicated, it's just how many times people say hello to each other, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I get what mm-hmm. you're saying, mm-hmm. but it's that because it's tough, let's just like make it about something else and then make that the thing that matters. It's like, well, I, I don't, I mean, it's very messy and human decision making is complicated and it's, let's say it's the best that we can do. I, I don't know if that even means the best that we can do. Like, I get it. We can make numbers out of it or make it clear. Mm-hmm. But what are we trying to understand? If we're understanding why people make decisions, then we need to look at all the things that go into them making decisions, not, well, no, they're just either being, you know, it's just one thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to get yeah. that. Yeah. So uh, I think the argument against it would be um, what you're suggesting, which is also that we're not asking the questions that matter. Mm-hmm. We're back under the lamppost. We're asking a very limited set of questions because if we have to have rich data, clear data, um, it's economists trying to be physicists, right? It's trying to presume simplicity into a model that's actually far, far too complicated. So better, you know, one alternative is in a very complex model is to just refine it to something really, really simple and say this is everything. An alternative is to say this is a very, you know, trying to find, let's say, well-being, meaning, happiness, physical, mental health. It's complicated. It's very difficult to boil down to a single number. Mm-hmm. But yet it's the most important thing. So if we can even get a glimpse or some insight or something powerful that measures this thing that we actually care about, this bigger, more intangible thing, that's more useful than saying all that matters or most of what matters is GDP. Or for an individual to say the most important thing in my life is how much money I have. And let me drive. We, we implicitly do it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Where people put all of their effort into what it is that's going to make more money. You mentioned you know, looking at Money, and there's other variables, but we over-index on money. I remember coming out of, you know, people coming out of law school or business school. They're deciding which career to choose. And there's many variables. One of them is salary. And others can be quality of life, future opportunities, all kinds of things. The thing that's easiest to measure is salary. So I think a lot of times, especially students that are sitting in debt, um, it was really easy to say, well, the most, this may not be the career that's most fulfilling. This may not be where I will thrive. And there's all the, other, all the other things that make it so that this is not the best choice, but it makes more money. And I saw a lot of, it's very uh, tempting to just make the decision based on what makes most money. Even if overall, if you comprise all of the factors, that wouldn't be the best career decision. Yeah, and it's also the, that money becomes... Because it's quantifiable, it's justifiable. I can say, why did you take this job over this job? It makes $250,000. This one makes two hundred. Okay. But if it's for non-quantifiable reasons, even though those are things that might make us happier in the long run, it's harder to justify, even to ourselves. Like telling mm-hmm. that story, we all are making a narrative of our own lives and who we are and why we do what we do. 
And I think this is, and so it's not to blame economists like they are the reasons why we care about money. Of course not. It's it, it would be very unfair to do that. But there is a sense that, that that quantifying it and making it that that's a rational choice. It's always a good choice. It seems to take more money if you can. If you don't, oftentimes in classical studies, it's looked at irrational. They took less money for oh, there was in a you know a prisoner's dilemma, or they could reject a, an offer, but they'd at least get some money. They yeah. were being irrational because they said no to three out of ten yeah. because they wanted five out of five. It's like there's it's one factor they were they didn't make the most money that part of it yes but let's look at everything else that's i think one of the issues i have is they look at if you maximize the money part for yourself you're rational if you didn't you're irrational and i think mm. that is an irrational way of looking at human behavior i know i said you can't define rationality but that's mm-hmm. a unsystematic even way of looking at human behavior when you're saying this is the only thing that matters. And that's why it does. I think it does translate to, in society, the sense that if you can make more, if you have more, it's always the right thing. And it does lead people in that direction where they think that. I've, I was sharing with you, I for some time worked on Saturdays seeing clients. And I would sometimes extrapolate, well, if I work mm-hmm. every Saturday for the year, it would be this much more for the year. And it just seemed like, how could I say no to that, you know, making possibly that much more? Then I was realizing my Sundays, I'd just be like a zombie because I was so tired mm-hmm. and then starting again Monday. And I did it for a, a, quite a while. And I was, it was just not good. And I had to cut that back for my well-being. And so this quantifiable thing of money became less, but my subjective experience of well-being became better. And how do we combine those? It is very tough. So we're, we are acknowledging, we're not saying quantifying is bad and subjective is good. We're definitely not in that camp, but it's recognizing those those limitations. So now we're going to go into the last commercial break. We'll try to pull a lot of these things together mm-hmm. and have some concluding remarks. Again, joined by my brother Parham. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, so with my brother Parham, I kind of joked with him before the break um, that no economists were harmed in the making of this podcast today because I do Emo- feel like I was emotionally <laughs> harmed. <laughs> emotionally, they weren't. That's not as quantifiable. So I'm okay. You can't quantify. <laughs> no, uh, so I think we did uh, do some of that. And I think it was more of understanding the limitations. And I, I actually do have some issue with like the, the rational thing is a big one for me and emphasizing money. And that being the most important metric, and it becomes that way for so many people. And again, it's not just economists. It's just something that has become part of our social experience. And money means something. It can mean security, safety, status. It has a lot of meanings to it that in a societal uh, level as well. So definitely some um, redeeming words there when it comes to uh, economists and studying the economy. But we wanted to wrap up today bringing it back to some of these things of what we measure and how we measure we're talking about a nation's well-being and then bringing it back to the individual because, as I mentioned earlier, no matter what you measure, there's values embedded in that of why you're choosing that and how important you make that and if you only measure that. So if we only measure GDP, we're saying economic growth, which will be biased towards some people versus others. If you focus on inequality, it will include more people and then some people might say, well, that's being too you know, they'll have issues that come up with that. So there's those things we can talk about. I don't know if you have any thoughts on what we measure from an economic standpoint and how that reveals the yeah, values itself. It definitely does. And I think just even, um, again, to rescue economics for a moment, I don't think anyone believes that economic models or economic metrics are all encompassing. Um, there's this like quote, you know, all economic models are wrong. Some are useful. So mm-hmm. every single one is missing variables. That has to be conceded. 
by any honest intellectual to say that this is a model. It's hopefully going to give us some insight into human behavior. And again, we've been talking about GDP. Let's use that again. GDP gives us some signal of some things that we care about. Mm -hmm. Not everything, not all of it. Many things are missed. Many things are overemphasized or underemphasized. But this measure gives us some insights. If it does, then it's a useful measure as long as we concede what it's missing, as long as we concede its limitations. Yeah. It can still be useful. So, so then when we're talking about it at the individual level, I think it raises a whole other set of questions. Is are we using the right measures to assess the life we want to live? And are these measures that we're using going forward? So we can't change the past, but we can change what we focus on going forward. Mm-hmm. Am I focusing, am I measuring the things and focusing my energies and attention on the things that are most likely to lead to the life that I want? Yeah, and I think that's what we wanted to bring it back to. Yeah, the you know Economists and ec- economy, all that stuff is very important. I find it intellectually quite interesting and things that we do need to make changes in. But bringing it back to ourselves individually, how will you measure your life? A great book by Clayton Christensen uh, with mm-hmm. that title, How Will You Measure Your Life? And it also ties into the book of the last week that I talked about today, The Power of Regret. You're talking about looking back and looking forward. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about looking forward and imagining what would be the things you might regret in your life and trying to live a life you would not regret based on those things. Which is why it can be important to consciously consider the values, the actions, the relationships, all the things you want in your life, and then try to create that life for yourself. And it even relates to this economic principle of revealed preference. We're talking about just making the decision in the moment. Mm -hmm. If you live in that way, you very likely will look back at a life full of regrets because you'll just make some decisions in the moment without recognizing what's guiding you or going towards the things that you value. So we can share some thoughts on how should you value your life or measure your life? Yeah. So I think that's um, it's a big question. Of course. Yeah. And I think... To me, part of this requires a level of mindfulness and a bit of just attention on what we're doing because two things can happen if we fail to do that. One is what you mentioned, the moment-to-moment. You're just relying on what feels good in the moment. That's what leads to addiction. That's what leads to um, all kinds of moments where we look back and have regret. Where we... I regretted that cough that I I just had. Um... When we have regret is when the values that we have are not embedded in the way that we live our lives. I think that's what it is. We look back and, and we realize, oh, wait a second, that's not what I wanted to focus my energy or attention on. Um, even even with the, within a day, one might look back and say, oh, this weekend, you know, I really had a different set of things that I wanted to do and that didn't happen. And I think part of that is just being mindful and having self-reflection and self-awareness to recognize what are those things that I care most about. Because otherwise, we're just going to be going with what society or what factors around us tell us are most important. That could be influences like what we see in the media, be it social media or traditional media, um, influences from what our job tells us we must be, um, what is valued by others. Because we don't have values within ourselves, we have no choice but to just incorporate the values of others. And if we excessively care about what other people think, we're going to value those things. If they value having material wealth and having a nice home and nice car, that's the most important thing to them. We're going to make sure our life is prioritized around those things that look best to them. So that those, are, those are places where when we don't have those values, when we're not 
self-aware enough to recognize what matters most to me, we rely on those external cues for what to emphasize and what to focus on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if we don't focus in the values, you get focused on what you value in the moment, which will be making yourself feel better in the moment. Mm-hmm. But then as you're saying, when you reflect on your life, you will likely reflect a lot of what you did and also especially what you didn't do, tying it back to the, the, the book that I was talking about today. So I think that can be a good point to look at. You know, you're talking about scarce resources, and one of our scarcest resources that we all have is time. Mm-hmm. One that we don't like to talk about, but one I've talked about much more on my show in the last couple of years especially, that we are going to die. I know people don't like to hear that, even saying it almost sounds funny, but all of us will die. We have a finite amount of time, and so we have to look at that in a way of, I don't want to regret the way I use this time. And so one of the, the biggest things that we find when we look at meaning and value in life is the relationships that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks actually in this book about that, the Harvard study that's been over 80 years with some of its participants, mm-hmm. but it added more people later on to try to balance a little bit more uh, the individuals being studied. But the quality of relationships, love, essentially, I know it sounds cliche, but that was the biggest predictor of um, our, our well-being. It's almost funny, the quality of the relationships, not the quantity, going yeah. back to this, yep. this distinction we kept making today. Mm-hmm. So it's not that if you have 2,000 friends on Facebook, you're going to be happy. But it's if you have some close people that you feel a meaningful connection with, you feel supported, you have better health outcomes, uh, well-being outcome, uh, happiness outcomes, less mental health issues, all these things comes down to that. So that to me is a big one, relationships. Um, doing something that itself is meaningful, doing something that you find meaningful and contributing to the world and sharing of yourself. So this also relates to the boldness regrets that were described in the book of taking chances, of taking risks, of showing more aspects of yourself to the world and, 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 and giving that to the world as a gift from you to the world that you also get to benefit from. I think that's also important. So relationships and doing something meaningful um, are really important. Anything you want to add on this theme? Yeah, I think along, along the lines of all of these themes, um, the problem with over-relying on pleasure and what feels good is that it often, what feels good in the moment might be picking up your phone and checking, you know, scrolling through Instagram. Or the Champions or, League scores, like I was doing. Like you were just doing, yeah, yeah, you were doing that. Uh, we over, we'll do that thing that feels good in the moment. Mm-hmm. And feeling good in the moment may not be what actually leads to the things that we actually care about, especially when these things are designed to be tempting enough to capture our attention. We live in what's called the attention economy, the most valuable resources, the attention of people, especially when you have so many options today. So getting people's attention is a very valuable currency. And so if we just give in to what the external cues are driving us towards, we're going to just do the thing that feels good in the moment, which is not that different from someone who's engaging in any kind of addictive Mm -hmm. behavior, addiction to anything. And so this is, again, why I was emphasizing the importance of mindfulness and self-awareness to live a value-driven life, because... We have to, one of the things that leads to the things we actually care about often will begin with discomfort. Mm -hmm. Our ability to tolerate discomfort, uncomfortable emotions, struggle. Think about it. Anyone who wants to go get, um, to finish a college degree is going to go through some struggle. If you want to finish medical school, you're going to have to go through some pain. You're going to have to stay up nights. You'll have friends that are out having a good time and you're going to have to say no to those things. Any, a meaningful relationship requires some pain, some discomfort, some struggle. The meaningful things in life, they often begin with pain. 
they begin with discomfort. They begin with uncomfortable mm-hmm. emotions. So what happens if you rely on pleasure? You're not going to engage in those things. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually, for me, a big theme on my show. But in this creating a good life, paradoxically, it's that you have to embrace negative feelings if you want to live a good life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the issues I have sometimes with research on happiness, where it's like, do you feel good? Mm-hmm. If you feel good, good life. If you don't, bad life. And so if you don't embrace negative feelings, today I talked about regret, sadness, anger, all of those ones that we think we should just get rid of, you won't be able to live a good life. You can't live a good life. And so I think the paradox is that most people think, I'll live a good life when I get rid of all the negative feelings, Mm. not realizing that actually incorporating those negative feelings, the ones that feel negative in the moment, into your life are the only way you can live a good life, a meaningful life, a fulfilling life, is to experience those things. And so one of the values we have to have is to recognize we have this positivity bias, which Mm. also could be like the money bias we are talking about before. That more positivity, more good. More money, more good. You know, I know that's really bad grammar with that. But but the sense is that if you have more of that thing, it's good and less of the negative. But we shouldn't look at it as like kind of debts and, you know, uh, income. It's like we want to go into those negative feelings more, which sounds strange to have that good life. But like you said, a value-driven life, not just a pleasure-driven life, will be more likely to lead you to a place where you feel satisfied with the life that you've created. Yeah. So I, I think to sum it up, from my perspective, it's we over-rely. If we just give in and are not mindful, self-aware, and self-reflective on what we care about, what the traps that we can fall into, I'd say, are two traps. One is the pleasure trap of this feels good now. We're much more inclined to do that unless we, in advance, when we're in our clear state of mind, can decide what to, attention, what to draw our attention to. And the second is over-relying on things that are measured which I think the clearest, there's many examples of this, but the clearest example of that is overemphasis on money. Mm -hmm. And so I think those two things, if we can kind of avoid, recognize those traps, that we're going to over-rely on things that can be measured, and we're going to over-rely on things that feel good in the moment, on pleasure, I think those two factors can lead us towards a, a life that's filled with the things that we really know we care most about, which is meaning and well-being, physical health, mental health, those are the things that drive our happiness, and yet it's easy to neglect those things for pleasure and for money because those things are very tempting and they're more immediate sometimes as well. Yeah. Maybe we, I think we can end there because we are just about out of time. But always a pleasure to me and Param have these conversations all the time, but to have it with you on the air today. Thank you, Param, for joining me. Definitely we'll have you back soon. I enjoyed so much. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you to everyone out there listening. Uh, again, a big thank you to Power Home. Uh, I'll be with you again Monday night. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lockwee. Have a wonderful day.